Brilliant. Okay, I'll get started. So this is the author who they believe, many believe to be Jeremiah, looking back on um, the siege of Jerusalem back in 587 BC. They'd been taken, uh, where they're taken into captivity for 70 years into exile. And this is him looking back on that, or they believe it's Jeremiah looking back on that, and just how awful the suffering was. And here he's speaking as a whole for Jerusalem as a whole, as ladies are, as he refers to them. Here we go. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become? She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of, um, of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan. Her virgins have, have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. And the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer. They find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wanderings all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her and they mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honoured her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. It is nothing to you, all you who pass by. Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire. Into my bones he made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint, all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together and they were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears for a comforter is far from me. One to revive my spirit. My children are desolate. For the enemy has prevailed. 
Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbours should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing amongst them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my sufferings. My young, my young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My, temp, my stomach is, in ch- is churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard, my, heard of my troubles. They are glad that, that, that you have done it. You have bought the day of you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me. Because of all my transgressions, for my groans are many and my heart is faint. So... This book of Lamentations is a lament. It is um, giving voice to our grief and our suffering. Suffering, we talked about last week, is something that when we lose something. And I think over the last 12 months, we can definitely say we've all lost something, haven't we? Maybe it's a big grief, like a loved one. Maybe it's one of those smaller griefs, like um, time with family. But we've all suffered something, and I think that this book really gives us voice, an opportunity to cry out to God like he wants us to, to ask the questions that we feel uncomfortable maybe saying to one another, but we get to cry out to God and say, why, O Lord? How long, O Lord? And we see that this is what the author of Lamentations, that they believe to be Jeremiah, is doing on behalf of the whole of Israel. They have experienced firsthand great and grave suffering. Just reading that, you hear that there is turmoil going on as he looks back on when they were, where Jerusalem was destroyed. Women raped, priests murdered, children eaten by their own mothers, it reads about later on, and that is seen as being a mercy. You see, we don't always understand why we're suffering. We don't always understand why specifically some things happen to some people, some things but don't happen to other people, and we don't always understand it. But there is a purpose to it, even when we don't understand it. And this book has very little hope in it, apart from one bit. One bit that is the centerpiece of this whole book that Jeremiah is trying to point us to, to say, this is where our hope comes from. And look at these verses. We looked at them last week. Here we go. It says, because of... It says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions, they never fail. They are new every single morning. Great is your faithfulness. And I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope is in him. To the one who sees him. And it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. You see, guys, there is hope in suffering, even in the most difficult of sufferings, because we hope in the character of the unchanging God, that he is compassionate and he is faithful, even when we don't know what's going on. And I hope that after last week, you had some time to spend just lamenting some things over the last 12 months or even from further back, 
crying out to God, voicing those things, giving, him, um, the opportun- giving us the opportunity to voice those things so he can hear them. And it's something that, us, that I want us as a church to do regularly. I want our first natural reaction is to go to the Lord and lament in our times of trouble. And sometimes we need to help other people in that, don't we? Sometimes people need help in taking their grief and their loss to the Lord. And we can walk alongside them and stand alongside them and just point them to God and in his hope, hope I was going to say hopelessness, his hopefulness, in the hope that we have in him, his compassion and his faithfulness. But why do we suffer? And I touched on it just very briefly earlier. We, we, we suffer, and sometimes we don't know why. We don't know specifically why one person suffers and another doesn't. But we know on a grander scale the reasons why we suffer, as, as Kenny talks about at the start, is because of the sin of others. There is sin in this world, and so people sin against us. They hurt our feelings. They say nasty things, and it has repercussions. You just have to turn on the news and you see some of the extreme things that are going on, some extreme abuses that people do to one another. It's heartbreaking. Our sin hurts other people. But then this world is sinful. Kenny talks about that, that this world is broken. It's not how it is going to be when Jesus returns, the world will be perfect. How it once was when Adam and Eve were living in perfect relationship with God the Father. And then today what we're going to look at, and we're going to focus on what we see in this passage, is that suffering happens because of our own sin. What is sin? Because there's there's three main words in the Bible that we see that are attributed to sin. We see sin is the word that is used in the Bible, and that's talked about as missing the mark, whether intentionally or unintentionally. The Bible says that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not one person is perfect. Only Jesus has lived the perfect life. But we all fall short and miss the mark. But then there's transgression that the Bible talks about, which is a willful, intentional disobedience, saying, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. And then what we see in this passage, and what we see that's going on in Israel at this time, is that they are abiding in sin. There is iniquity going on that the Bible refers to, which is where um, it talks about... Sorry, lost my place here. But um, where it talks about a, perver- a perversion of the truth, a twisted attitude that pre- uh, pre-medi- premeditates and makes a plan to commit sin. Where we love that sin more than we love God and we are happy to stay in it and we don't want to be pulled out from it. And that's the context we have here. Israel is so deeply deprived in their sin. And we see that in verse 8 and in verse 9. Look at this. It says, Jerusalem has sinned greatly and so has become unclean. Verse 9 is a really vivid image that we get that's going on. That Her filthiness clung to her skirts. She did not consider her future. It's talking about um, the uncleanliness of a woman's menstrual cycle and the skirt getting stuck to that. It's, It's like it's a really filthy image that is that is that he says here because their sin is so unclean they've rebelled against god they've worshiped other gods they're not caring for the poor there's been disunity there's incest there's all sorts of stuff that's going on how can a perfect god have anything to do with that and we praise the lord that he can't have anything to do with sin He has to deal with it, and this is his justice is being outworked on his own people to show them that 
I'm slow to anger, but I will act. I have to. I wouldn't be a good and perfect God if I didn't, because this is not good for you. Israel preferred sin. And we see just how far they've fallen um, in here. Verses 1 to 7 um, shows, verses 1 to 7 talks about um, how far they've fallen. They are a great city that are now a weeping widow, childless. They're weeping at night. God has taken action because of their sin. In verse 12, it talks about um, that God is taking this action. It's fierce anger that's being outworked at them. And it's because of her many sins. Verse 5. Suffering came because of their sin. And so for us today, sometimes we may think to ourselves, how can we apply this to ourselves? We're not like, we're maybe not as bad as Israel. We don't feel like we're doing as many bad things as Israel were doing. But we do sin. We intentionally or unintentionally, we do sin. We do break God's commands. We do fall short of what he has set for us and what his rules are. There's transgression in our lives. We intentionally say, I'm going to do this. I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do this anyway. And then there's also... Um, iniquity that goes on in our lives where we're so deeply stuck in our sin that we're happy to stay in it. We want to stay in it. Anger, gossip, laziness, just to name a few, lusts of the flesh. These are all things that can take us away from God. These are all things that, are, that, that can lead to iniquity and can lead to us not being able to even see that God is good and that he's there. And the consequences of our sin that we see are multifaceted. That means there's, there's many different things that are affected because of our sin. And we see here today there's three relationships that we're going to look at. First of all, when we abide in sin, it impacts my relationship with God. For those of us that know and love Jesus, we are in his family. But even though we are in his family and we have been saved by the blood of Christ it can still affect our relationship with God, our day-to-day relationship with him. We see here for Israel, look at this, all the splendor has departed from daughter Zion. God had departed. We see in verse 10, the enemy laid hands on all her treasures and she saw pagan nations enter her sanctuary, those you had forbidden. No one could enter the sanctuary a priest, uh, only certain days of the year, was able to enter the Holy Holies and, 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 and make sacrifice to, to God on behalf of the people. But here we see this temple where God is, or was, has been broken and destroyed. He has departed. He has left them because of their sin. He said, I'm gone. I'm out of here. Their sin was first and foremost against God, and it broke that relationship. And I don't know about you, but I can quite often... Forget that my sin is first and foremost against him. Israel had forgotten for centuries. They had neglected him. They had, they had not taken part in the sacrificial system that they'd been given to be able to make um, to payment for their sin. We don't have to do that now. We have Christ and we praise the Lord for that. But back then, they had a sacrificial system where God had said, I know you are not going to keep my commands. I know you're going to sin. I know you're going to transgress. But you just need to come back to me and pay and sacrifice for your sins. And we are now the new Israel. We have been given, um, we have Jesus now who's paid that penalty for our sin so we can enter the Holy of Holies at any time. We can enter God's presence at any point and ask for forgiveness for our sins. 
But for Israel, God departed. They were expressing judgment, suffering, most awful suffering because of their sin. And they go into exile for 70 years. See, God doesn't depart us. He doesn't leave us. We have the gift of the we have the, the we have the gift of the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. If we know and love Jesus, he's in us. It doesn't depart us, but it does affect our relationship. And just thinking about some ways in which it affects our relationship as believers with God, even though we've had our sins forgiven, is I can hide from God. What did Adam and Eve do? As soon as they'd sinned, what did they do? They hid from God. Where are you? They were hiding from him. It's because we feel shame, we feel guilt, And we hide from him and we don't take our sin to him. We feel separated. We have a lack of fellowship with God. 1 John 3, 6 says, um, if, if we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. We do not have fellowship with him. It reduces our confidence in prayer. We start not going to God. We start not praying in the Holy Spirit's will, in, in the Father's will. We, we, we don't know what the, the will is of the Father because we are so deep in our sin. The Psalm 66 even says that the Lord will not hear our prayer. It says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So it can affect our relationship with God. But sin never stops just there. It has arms and legs. It has tentacles. It goes and affects other relationships. Like this one, it says, when I abide in sin, it impacts my relationship with others. When I abide in sin, it impacts my relationship with others. For Israel, we see in verse 2 here that that means, sorry, I can't see any more on there, but um, I think, am I able to? Thanks, Ben. It should say on the screen something. It should read this in verse 2. Among all her lovers, there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They've become her enemies. Her allies had left her because of her sin. Even the friends she had had left her. And get this in verse 17, which I think is just mind-boggling. It says, The Lord has decreed for Jacob that his neighbors become his foes. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. The nations who were supposed to be even more sinful than, than Israel didn't know Yahweh, but, but they at least had a respect for Israel's God. And then they look back now and they're like, man, what are, you, what are you doing? You've been protected for years by Yahweh, and now you're this filthy thing. We're not going to have anything to do with you. I mean, that says something, doesn't it? Just think of some examples for us of how our sin can affect others. And just in a simple way, looking at faithfulness. When we're people say we're going to do something, we have a responsibility to do something, our sin is, and we don't do it, our sin is against God first and foremost, but then it impacts others, doesn't it? Feeling let down, distrust. Disunity comes forward then. Think of a husband or a wife who is... Um, lusting after another person, maybe even looking at porn. It is, it is a sin against God first and foremost, but then it's, it's hidden to begin with, but there's a distancing in the relationship that goes on. And then when it's found out what happens, the relationship can break. 
hurt and emotional and psychological pain is done. See, our sin has an impact on other people. And sometimes we don't always think about that when we're in it, when we're deep in iniquity and we love it so much, we don't think of the consequences. But there's also consequences for us as well. The tentacles go even further. When I abide in sin, it impacts myself. Sorry, Ben, this is... Ah, brilliant. Sorry, it is on there. When I abide in sin, it impacts myself. Verse 14, if you can see it on the screen, it says, My sins have been bound into a yoke. By his hands they have been woven together. They've been um, a hinge on my neck, and the Lord has sat my strength. He has given me into the hands of those I cannot withstand. Sin has become a yoke for the people of Israel. The sin has been a burden on their neck because they've not taken it and done the sacrificial system, and Israel is weighed down by it now. So today, for us as believers in Jesus, we hear Jesus talks about our yoke being easy and our burden light because our yoke and burden is now to go and tell other people about Jesus. That's, and it's light. It's a good thing that we get to do because he's taken off the heavy burden of our sin once and for all. But when we abide in sin, it does become weighty again for us, doesn't it? We take on things that we don't need to take on. We are robbed of joy. We become unfruitful. Robs us of peace. We doubt our salvation when we are deep in our sin. It affects us internally. The person who's not faithful to complete the task has the impact against God, um, sins against God, sins, sins, against, um, uh, sins against others, but also against themselves. It can lead to self-pity, self-loathing, feeling ashamed, let down, untrusted. Our sin affects God first and foremost. It then outworks itself in our relationships with others, and then it outworks itself in our own hearts. You can never say, I'm just sinning against one thing, just God, or I'm just sinning against myself. No, it has multiple effects, as we see in this passage today. But as we know, there is an antidote, and we praise the Lord for this, that the context of these words is within a lament, within a shouting out and crying out to God, giving voice to their grief and their suffering which means that the author is crying out first and foremost to God. That's his first thing to do. Even when God has departed, the author remembers his faithfulness, God's compassions and his faithfulness. They fail not. There is hope even in our sufferings, even when we're living with the consequences of our own sin, there is still hope in the midst of that. And of course, the hope that we have now is Jesus God's faithfulness and his compassions have been shown to us in Christ. He is our antidote to our sin. But first and foremost, what do we have to do? We have to do what this, uh, the author does here, which is the author has an honest lament, and heartfelt lament. It's a genuine brokenness and a calling to God. Come and search my heart and reveal to me what is going on. He doesn't blame other people. He doesn't blame other people. He doesn't say, oh, this is your fault. This is Babylon's fault. They're the ones that have come in and destroyed the, t- destroyed the city and taken everyone into exile. He doesn't do that. He says, what's he say? See, Lord, how distressed I am. I'm in torment within, and in my heart I'm disturbed, for I have been most rebellious. He recognises it's him. 
recognise it's, it's Jerusalem's fault for doing this, for Israel's fault for doing this. Do we cry out in honest lament to God when we, when, um, to search our hearts? So I want to encourage us that this week, maybe that's the thing that we need to do. We need to cry out to God and say, search my heart. I don't even know where my sin is. Make me aware of it first and foremost. And then the next step is honest lament shows us that we need to repent and ask God to, to forgive our sins. He says this in verse 18a, The Lord is righteous, yet I rebelled against his command. He saw that he'd sinned first and foremost against God, that he needed to confess his sin. And then the next stage is we need to repent of it. We need to confess it, say that we know what it is, and say, Lord, I'm sorry. But then we repent and we turn away from it. There's a full turning away from that and saying, Lord, I don't want to do that again. Help me, please. And then, honest lament leads us to correction and restoration. That's the goal. The goal of all this, the goal of the suffering of Israel that we see here, the goal in our suffering, whether it's due to our sin, other people's sin, or the sin of the world, there is a point to it. It leads to restoration. But when we're in our own sin, it also leads to correction for us. Hebrews says, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. The goal in our sin, as we live in the outworking of it, the consequences of it is that he corrects us so we don't try and make the same mistakes again. What a loving father would do, isn't it? I don't want you to make that mistake again because it's not good for you. It's not good for others. It takes you away from me. It damages the relationships with me, with other people and within yourself. I don't want that for you. I love you. And as we ask for forgiveness, which we are freely given, as we boldly approach the throne of grace, the consequences of our sin aren't always taken away. They're not always taken away. But it is an opportunity for us to be corrected and invite that correction. Say, Lord, discipline me. I I want to learn from this. Do we look on sin this way? Is it an opportunity to be corrected for us? See, the posh word for that is sanctification. God is sanctifying us and changing us and making us new, changing us from one degree of glory to the next because, and get this, I think this is a wonderful picture that we see in Ephesians, isn't it? Ephesians talks about we are the, we are the new Israel, we are the church, we are um, being made into this, built into this new community to show the universe and the world that God is good and that he's coming and that he has victory and that one day it will all come to fruition. And in the meantime, what he's doing in each and every single one of us as individuals and collectively as a church is he is beautifying us. He is, he is changing us and working us, refining us because, and I love this picture, Christ is our bridegroom. We are the bride. And on a wedding day, what does the bride do? What do they spend hours doing in the morning? Getting themselves ready, beautifying themselves for their bridegroom. I know Nikki spent ages doing it. I don't have to take too long. But, you know, Nikki spent ages getting ready to make herself look as beautiful as possible. She always looks very beautiful. But anyway, um, just for the sake of this analogy. Um, And that's what God's doing for us. It's a great work he's doing. Even he uses our own sin to do that. Praise the Lord for that, that he wants to, to make us and present us as beautiful as possible back to our bridegroom. When we forget that... All the other things become a bit like a a tick list. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. No, 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 no. There's a beautiful grand plan for us, making us as beautiful as possible for the bridegroom. When we go to heaven, we will be fully perfect, made perfect. 
We get to experience that and we look forward to that day. But until then, we live in the now and not yet. He's working in us, perfecting us and making us more and more like his son Jesus. That excites me. And so what I, and, and we may not have time now, but maybe just take a picture of this or um, spend some time this week doing this, is, is, is cry out to God. Ask him to search your heart. A good, honest lament. Confess and repent of your sin. Invite the correction. And see that the end goal is so much bigger than we ever normally think about. There is a work and a reason behind what he's doing. Even when we can't see in the, that specific case what he's doing, on the grand scale of things, he's doing something in you to make you more beautiful, more holy for the bridegroom.